You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 190 by Rudolf Steiner, 12 lectures entitled Past and Future Impulses and Societal Events, translated by Paul King. This is Lecture 6, given in Dornach on the 30th of March, 1919. What we call the social question addresses itself to our times as a world historic challenge with the greatest possible intensity. But at the same time we can say that this, our present time, has had the least possible preparation to enable it to approach this social question with real penetrating understanding. We just need to be under no illusions about this. We have often had to draw attention to the deep chasm existing between the leading classes and social ranks up to the present day and the proletarian masses. During the course of modern historic development, the leading classes and social ranks have largely closed themselves off into certain interest groups and have neglected to maintain an understanding of humanity in general. The proletarian masses have been forced by their whole condition in life to regard themselves as excluded from the circumstances the leading classes have more or less spun around themselves. Now, as regards this separation into classes, we could say that the situation in ancient Greece, for example, was even worse. There was a large population of slaves in Greece, who were not only partially regarded as property in terms of their labor, but were regarded in their entire humanity as property, were bought and sold at market. But it would be looking at the matter wrongly if we only considered what has just been mentioned. Certainly, right into the modern era, there was a crass division and separation into classes. But this had more to do with external living conditions, with conditions that are expressed in outward social rank. During more modern times, and this is what is significant, a kind of association of people sharing a common mindset has spread out over the leading classes, an association closely connected with the egotistical interests of these leading classes and in which the great proletarian masses have no participation. We need only think of how little the intellectual and spiritual life of earlier times worked in this direction. Certainly there were single individuals in ancient times who, as mystery leaders or mystery pupils, were permeated with the higher members of spiritual and cultural life. But this cultural life was not divided up in the way it is today, where the individual takes on bourgeois education and culture much as he puts on better bourgeois clothing as opposed to workers' overalls, and leaves the proletarian only a proletarian education, just as he leaves him his workers' overalls. Think how, over centuries, Christianity has striven to spread over humanity a common spiritual life, in which all individuals are equal before God. And also, when we look back, let's say to the spiritual life of the ancient Hebrews, we find there, to be sure, the scribes and Pharisees, separate elevated communities, 
that were in possession of a certain spiritual and cultural life. But what they gave out of this spiritual life, they gave equally to all classes. Class division related far more to things other than spiritual life. And we should not forget that throughout the Middle Ages, for example, the content of spiritual life in the Middle Ages was image, which in the Church could be seen by everyone, could be seen by the highest noble and by the poorest of the poor. This spiritual life united people from lowest to highest. Then came more recent times, in which the old imagery was essentially ousted by the written word. There was increasingly less understanding for the image, for the imaginative element, and people sought education more and more in writings, in the written and printed word. And this written and printed word took on a form more and more that made it possible for an upper stratum to develop in education alongside the proletarian feeling for humanity as a whole. This psychological duality in society, which has emerged increasingly in recent times, is the basis, more than anything else, of the deep, deep social chasm that has now had such terrible consequences. In addition to this comes the fact that in the fifth post-Atlantean period, in this period of prevailing consciousness-soul development, people became more and more egotistical, because they had to reach the pinnacle, as it were, of human personality, because it was precisely the human personality that was supposed to be developed. Due to this development of personality, it became evident that people were less and less able really to understand one another, to be responsive to one another. We have finally arrived at, in this present age at the point where it has become virtually impossible for people to reason with one another. Hence they so easily resort to the path of violence to spread their ideas. How often have I stressed here and in other situations in our community that everyone today, even without any real requisite knowledge, always has their point of view. No matter how green a novice one might be, one has one's stance nowadays regarding the most mature and experienced views. The feeling that a standpoint from which to judge life should be gained through maturity, through wide experience, has progressively disappeared. Being open and responsive to the other so that one can be persuaded by what is living in the other's soul has receded more and more. This is why people understand each other so terribly little. In addition, there is the fact that during the course of the past few centuries, people have increasingly turned away from the spiritual altogether. I particularly stressed again here recently that we should not be deluded by people still going to church and professing religion. This religion signifies extraordinarily little for the connection people need and ought to seek between the sensory world in which they live between birth and death and the supersensory world. The greater part of what people today maintain as their religious content is nothing more than a life in words, a life in language. And having stressed yesterday and the day before yesterday how abstract life in language has become, we need not wonder that religious life too, which is expressed for people in language, has become something abstract and therefore also materialistic. For all abstraction actually always leads people to what is materialistic, 
And the question that should constantly permeate and reverberate through our whole life, what is the human being in reality, points to something that is barely accessible to the average person of the present day. Just reflect that in order to answer the question as to what the human being really is, one needs to look openly and with devotion at the whole cosmos. For the human being is a microcosm, a world in miniature, and is only understandable when one can picture him as having been born out of the whole cosmos. The prerequisite to an understanding of the human being is an understanding of the cosmos. But how little in the present age of a science focused only on externalities is a real understanding of the cosmos and therefore also of the human being sought today. Even though at the present time it might often be thought that this is in no way connected with an understanding of the social question, nevertheless it is absolutely true that everything I have just discussed is intimately bound up with this question. But we will only gradually notice the connection when we become inclined lovingly to look into the spiritual. People today want to solve the social question based purely on externalities. We will only really be able to solve it when we can establish the spiritual experience behind all human aspiration, sensibility, and willing, when in turn we can fruitfully pose the question, how can a genuine connection be established between the world in which people live, between birth and death, and the world in which we live between death and a new birth? You are all more or less acquainted with the group statue, which depicts the Trinity for a worldview of the future, the representative of humanity between Lucifer and Araman. You will have noticed that an attempt has been made to portray this representative of humanity so that its effect as a whole should be like that of the features of the human countenance. The nature of the features of the human countenance is that they are an expression of our soul life. We talk about physiognomy, we talk about people's gestures in relation to certain external things, and we know that this mobility coming to expression in physiognomy and gesture, is connected with soul life. To the extent that the countenance has a physiognomic expression in the human being between birth and death, we not only try to portray the countenance of our representative of humanity in the group according to its physiognomy, but endeavored also by following, as it were, the principle in nature by which the human countenance on its own is structured, to shape the whole human figure in such a way as to make it in every form and every part an expanded countenance. Why did we do this? Because in our time the aspiration must once more gain ground to establish a common understanding between beings that live only as spiritual soul beings and beings who live physically here on the earth, like for example human beings. Let's bring to mind what it is these beings perceive of our earth as a whole, just as we brought to mind what the dead perceive of our language. Firstly, on our earth we have the wide kingdom of rocks, the mineral kingdom. This mineral kingdom exists to a certain extent in crystal forms, but also as shattered pieces, and as amorphous rock 
as it is called. Basically, the dead only see the crystalline forms of the earth, what arise as regular form out of the formational conditions of the earth, and they see these as hollow bodies. You can read about these things in my title, Theosophy. With plants, the dead do not initially see the same form we see with our eyes. It is actually very difficult to describe what the dead see of plants. In the first place, the earth's whole plant world is like a great body for them, but they don't see the green plant form that we see, but rather they see a certain movement, the plant's growth. They see the leaves arising one after the other up to the flower. They see precisely what evades the human being. So they see the earth as a great single organism, and hair, as it were, growing spiritually out of the earth, for the plants are spiritualized. And with the animal world, I am always referring here to the external sense-perceptible forms, the dead only see the animal's movement over the earth, not the individual shape of the animal, but the change of location. And what do the dead see of the human being? insofar as people bear a physical form. The human form in itself is such that with the exception of a few parts, the dead see nothing of the human being at all. They perceive the soul, the spiritual, but the outer form not at all. So if we had given the representative of humanity a purely naturalistic form, like the human form people have here on earth, this figure would quite simply be imperceptible to the dead and also to the Angeloi and Archangeloi. For all spiritual beings, no longer having a physical body with physical eyes, the human figure, reproduced purely according to its form, is something invisible, something imperceptible. And only when you start to express a soul element in the form, so that the form no longer corresponds in a naturalistic way to the human form on earth, do the dead begin to see it also? If you sculpt a usual symmetrical face, which faces generally are not, but that's how people see them, the deceased sees nothing of this so-called work of art. Our form can only be made visible for supersensory beings too if it is asymmetrical, if the asymmetry is emphasized, if it contains something of a soul nature which naturalistically would not otherwise be expressed in the outer form. Now just consider how art in modern times has become more and more naturalistic. I have perhaps related this before, but when I was young I had a sculptor friend who later got a certain name for himself in his home country. We were discussing artistic monuments, and in response to my horror at them, he said that the best reproduction of a human being would be one in which every detail of a person were reproduced spatially, very exactly, in stone or bronze or some other material. I answered that the result would be the very opposite of what ought to result. For in reality an artwork should not be a mere copy. It should be different in all respects from the original. He didn't understand this at all. For him a cast replica was actually the most perfect sculptural artwork. But we could say that modern art is done in many respects out of this way of thinking and how art is judged is based on it too. So where in the end could a different judgment of art come from? After all, 
Surely people have to feel something when they see a form shaped in marble or bronze or the like. When people have no relationship at all to a spiritual world, they can form no other judgment of art than by asking, Is it like nature? Is there something like this in nature? And if they conclude that there is not, they then deem what art depicts to be unjustified. But my dear friends, let's repeat this again and again. There is actually something rather ludicrous in this reproduction of life purely naturalistically. Writing plays the way Hauptmann does is surely ludicrous because it goes without saying that nature can do it better. Obviously, we can't compete with nature in this respect, whereas what is brought out of the spiritual worlds is an enrichment, albeit an imperfect one, of nature, something new brought into this world. But modern times have inclined increasingly toward this naturalism, which is materialism in the sphere of history. This all stems from people's rejection of spiritual life. A healthy return to spiritual life is only possible by thinking about the relationship between the physical and the superphysical as concretely as we have tried to do in the most varied fields, by elucidating what the dead hear of language, what they see of the forms that are here on earth for the sense-perceptible human being. Only when, just as for something on the physical earth, we clarify for ourselves in detail what the relationships are between sensory and supersensory things, do we get a real idea of the connection between the sensory and the supersensory? Only in the new era has our sense for this connection between the sensory and the supersensory been killed off by advancing materialistic naturalism, which has been taking hold of people with increasing energy ever since the 15th or 16th century. And now science will finally recognize nothing else but what is real to the senses. People have thereby torn themselves away from a real living connection of co-feeling with the spiritual world. In the 18th century, things were still different in certain cultural areas. In French culture, among the encyclopedists, materialism bore its most ingenious fruits. It then spread more and more until there finally emerged what leads people the most away from the spiritual world, living in theosophical abstractions. This living in theosophical abstractions that confines itself to saying the human being consists of physical body, etheric body, astral body, and so on, the human being has a karma, the human being lives repeated earth lives, that one wants to teach these abstractions as something great but gets no further than words. This leads ultimately to the extreme arrogance that is so prevalent in many theosophical societies. For then one remains stuck entirely in outer words. Only when we move on to describe such things as what the dead hear of our speech, what the dead see of what we have here in our surroundings, only when we progress to such concrete thoughts as these do real thoughts about the spiritual world open up. The utmost extremes border on each other, chatter and gossip in words like, in quotes, astral body, etheric body, and so on, behind which there is often nothing more than the word, and pure naturalistic materialism. We definitely need to gain a feeling for such things, a feeling that we want to hear in concrete detail 
about the relationship between the physical and the superphysical world. And only when we fill ourselves with such concrete thoughts about the connection between the physical and superphysical world can we return to what people in former epochs had in a different way, can return to a far-reaching interest in the cosmos. We can ask, why has all the misfortune that has befallen the earth done so? Well, the ultimate reason is that people's interest has become so narrow that it barely goes beyond the most everyday things. It is obvious that if people stop being interested in the stars, they start to become interested in coffee table gossip. If people stop having even a few thoughts that survey the relationships of the higher hierarchies, they get a longing to fritter away their time in everyday games. Just look at the interests that have occupied the leading circles of humanity for the past couple of centuries. Just look at what these people do from morning to night. And if we look at this with understanding, we will find it no wonder that such a debacle occurs in humanity as has occurred. People today are content to get just an outline of an idea in a few words. They are happy if they can get an idea about something or other without any effort. The history of humanity's development speaks loud and clear about the various ways of seeing things. Examples in this respect are countless. In recent years, for example, German culture has been repeatedly reproached for having a Hegel with his theory of the state where Hegel says that the state is ultimately like a kind of God on earth. Yes, but now bear in mind that there was not only a Hegel in German intellectual life, but also Stirner, and separated from Hegel by only a few years. Whereas for Hegel, the state was something like a God walking on earth, for Stirner the state was a piece of dirt, something one could only negate. They both lived very close to each other. One can hardly imagine greater extremes, but both emerged from the same cultural life of thought. If one wants to present such a life of thought, one has to do it, for example, in the way done in my title Riddles of Philosophy, where the one thinker is described with the same inner engagement as the opposite thinker. From what I write about Hegel, you might believe I espoused Hegel's point of view then, from what I write about Stirner, you might believe I espoused the Stirnerian point of view. This is only meant to indicate that we should educate ourselves to an understanding of how diverse people are, to inner tolerance. We should be interested in what is thought quite differently in the soul of another from what we think. We should have the feeling that this other way of thinking completes our own. Let's say there are ten people. Steiner draws on the board, that I am one of them with the other nine around me. Now I say to myself, could I think about a particular subject in a certain way, the second person thinks in a different way, the third in yet another way, the fourth and fifth in their ways, so all in more or less various and different ways. They are all right, and none of them is right. Close quote. When we feel roughly the arithmetic mean of all this, when we feel a connection between ourselves such that we grasp everything with the same love, irrespective of whether we say it or the others say it, when we learn to feel ourselves within a commonality, then we are hastening toward the destiny that awaits the human beings of the future. We must aspire to this hastening toward 
what awaits us. We must aspire to it for the simple reason that we thereby obtain a sense for real social life. In our feeling we must learn to stand within what is encompassed by the genius of language, to stand within what is encompassed by a common life of law, by the genius of legal rights. We must learn to stand within what is encompassed by the genius of a common economy. Only this living, quote, feeling oneself within the whole, close quote, which people must acquire in the age of the consciousness soul, only this moves us toward what is destined for humanity in the future. But we can acquire this movement toward our future destiny in no other way than by extending our interest ever wider and wider, in other words, by learning to detach from ourselves. Indeed, my dear friends, if we ponder this very honestly, we will eventually discover that the most utterly uninteresting thing of all in the whole world is what one can think and feel about oneself in the circle of one's most narrow ego. Nevertheless, many people of the present time think and feel a great deal about this narrow ego. This is why their life is so boring. This is why they are so dissatisfied with life. We will never become interesting if we just constantly circle around this point. By contrast, when we turn our gaze outward and look always at what comes shining toward us from the outer world, when we increasingly broaden our range of interest, our ego then becomes interesting by giving us a standpoint from which to observe the outer world. Our ego only then becomes significant by the fact that precisely in this point of the ego, only we and no one else can see the world. Anyone else sees it from their standpoint. But if we remain in ourselves, constantly just circling about ourselves, we actually regard only what we have in common with everyone else, and we lose interest in every other person and ultimately in the whole world. A broadening of our interest is also what is aspired to above all by spiritual science. But to experience this broadening of interest requires that we train our soul in such a way that it comes into a condition of receptivity toward what approaches us from outside, that it can really absorb something new. People don't reject spiritual science because it is difficult. It is really not difficult but they reject it because it doesn't just trundle on along habitual lines of thought, because it demands new lines of thought from people. People reject everything that requires new ways of thinking. One can experience curious things in this regard. Over the recent horrendous years, I communicated the content of the call, in quotes, which you are acquainted with, and also various things from my book on the social question, which will appear in a few days, to various individuals because it was a matter of people needing to learn from the bitter experience of the last few years to act out of themselves in a way that was necessary for them to act. When, for example, I spoke to certain individuals about how essential it is that intellectual and cultural life should stand on its own footing, that it should no longer be entangled with the state or the economic system, these people did listen to me. And on very many of these occasions, it did seem initially that people were making an effort to form an idea. 
If one is there and speaking, people are polite and don't do what they might do if they were only reading the subject. So they formed an idea. But then, when the gesture of politeness was over, which, after all, has no real truthfulness of thought in it, their mechanical thinking got regurgitating again. And in such situations, one heard again and again, quote, Yes, of course, it makes sense to have a separation of church and schools, close quote. That was the only thing people had heard, the only thing, as a familiar thought, that was mentioned by one person in one way or by someone else in another, well-worn lines of thought. Everything else passed them by like smoke and mirrors. Here we are touching on things that need to change in our times. The attentive receptivity we ought to develop will also become receptive to the revelations which, as I discussed here recently, are seeking to reveal themselves to human beings, precisely in our age, from the spiritual world. How often we have heard in recent times that everything must be easy. And again and again we have heard the cleverest people quoting from Goethe, quote, And does not the all-encompasser, the all-sustainer, also encompass you, me, and itself? Close quote. Quote, name is sound and smoke, feeling is everything, close quote, and so on. This is supposed to be very profound, but Goethe wrote it as a lesson that Faust gives to a sixteen-year-old girl. This has been overlooked. What was written as something suited to the naive heart and mind of Gretchen became profound philosophical wisdom. People didn't notice this but something written for a sixteen-year-old Gretchen is naturally easier to comprehend than something not written for a sixteen-year-old Gretchen, but for people of maturity. People of the present time need to realize the errors that are made in this direction and move away from very many conventional ideas. The culture of the modern era also repeatedly has undertones of what contains certain seeds for the future. I quoted Fichte here recently, quote, Man is able to do what he ought to do, and when he says, I cannot, it just means he will not. Close quote. This is a very important statement, and one needed absolutely by the modern individual, above all as a guiding principle. For the modern person should not indulge in laziness, and when faced with certain situations, say, quote, I can't, close quote, it is in the nature of modern people that they can do far more than they often persuade themselves they can, and that genius for them must more and more be a result of hard work. But we have to be able to attain for ourselves a belief in this hard work. We have to eradicate, as it were, every thought that we are not able to do one thing or another that we ought to do. We should always bear in mind how infinitely obvious it is to say we can't do something because it's too uncomfortable to try to do it. And the more modern people make this a rule in their daily lives, the more they will work themselves upward to this mood for the soul spiritual, to being receptive to the soul spiritual. This mood will evoke in far more people than you think at present the inner experience of what anthroposophically oriented spiritual science is trying to say, what 
anthroposophically oriented spiritual science is trying to say, at least for certain elementary things, is available, my dear friends, to the human heart and mind. One just has to have the courage to receive it. And if we develop this mood, understanding of society and interest in society will also develop. For when do we lack social understanding? We only lack social understanding when we have no interest beyond the circle of our own life. Social understanding immediately awakens as soon as we are interested in what lies beyond the circle of our life, but are truly and genuinely interested. Bearing these things in mind is particularly necessary in the age of consciousness-soul development. The reason this is necessary is that in the age of consciousness-soul development, cosmic forces point humanity toward the ego, to the consciousness-soul. In other words, we must be all the more on guard to get beyond this ego. Because there is so much that is anti-social rising up out of the depths of the human soul today. All the more must our consciousness develop social elements that we send back in turn into the subconscious depths. A common experience for most people today is that they don't rightly know how properly to deal with themselves. This stems from the fact that they only want to engage with themselves. The moment we want to engage in experience and feeling not only with ourselves but with the whole world, we start doing what is right for us too. These things go alongside what we can call an understanding for the social question. In many respects, the social question is a soul question. But only someone standing within anthroposophically oriented spiritual science will know how to feel it in the right way as a soul question. This is what I wanted to speak to you about today. The end of Lecture 6